Hello, I'm Dawn, owner of Hungry Heart Quest. Thank you for tuning in. With me today is my friend Graham Mills. Graham is an ecologist, a hiker, a swordsman, and a creative. Uh, what would you like to add to that, Graham? <laughs> Hi, wow, quite, a, quite the introduction. Um, I am currently working on a master's degree in rangeland science uh, and specifically soil science at University of Nevada, Reno. I have worked professionally as a, a restoration biologist for a nonprofit uh, called River Partners based out of Sacramento in California, where I was in charge of designing uh, and to some extent implementing uh, large scale restoration projects on the Sacramento and San Joaquin River and the Delta. Uh, and of course, I've known you for many, many years. Um, we met in college uh, at Swords Fighting. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's very, very uh, exciting to be here, exciting to see what you're, what you're doing now. And I'm happy to share as much as I can. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have you as a resource and also as somebody who is a, like very friendly and open to talking about the things that you nerd out about and open to <laughs> philosophizing on them a little bit. So I'm very glad that you're willing to do that. Um, so one of the things that I have started to do with these is start with this icebreaker that is telling a story that went wrong, like a, some outdoor experience that was like hilariously wrong. <laughs> um, and then maybe something you learned about it, you know, and learned for future experiences. Boy, have I got a story for you. Um, so when I was in high school, I went to a boarding school um, that had 2,800 acres of property. Um, it was in uh, sort of South Central uh, California, um, sort of near wine country, but a little lower. And it was built on an old Spanish land grant uh, from a ranch that was taken over in the 30s. And it was very, very focused about having a connection to the natural world. And in addition to being a college prep school and having English and you know calculus and stuff like that, every student also had to take a geology course and uh, a geography course, learning how to read topographic maps, um, learning about the property. That was a big uh, impetus. And as part of this, once a year, they would uh, have what they called All Saints Day, which was a random day that they canceled classes. And the only <laughs> rule was you can't stay on campus. You hmm. have to go out on the property, right? Um, Exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was, it, was, it was generally in the spring when the weather was nice and everything was green for about three weeks before it dried out. Um, and it was, it was something that everybody looked forward to. Uh, so you can't stay on campus. You have to go out on the property. Uh, a couple friends and I, went out on what we called the death hike, uh, which was a 17 mile uh, hike up up to the ridge line um, and then bushwhacking across the ridge line until we reached the uh, peak of Grass Mountain, which was the big mountain in the forest nearby, and then on our way back. Um, and so we left bright and early, brought lots of food, and it was a great time. We had a fantastic time right up until the end, of course, um, <laughs> which is why this is a, a story where things went wrong. Uh, we were on our way back, and it was about evening. Um, this is spring, so it's not full summer yet. And it was very windy, and it was getting dark, and we were on our way back. We are back on trails, walking back to campus. We probably had about four miles to go. Um, when we hear somebody yelling across the drainage, it's too dark to see who they are. 
but somebody's yelling, help, help, help. Oh my gosh, help. Turns out somebody else at the school had gone mountain biking, had flipped over their handlebars and the handlebar had uh, hit them in on the inside of the thigh. Um, and it had put a kink in their artery so they couldn't move Ooh. their leg. Uh, so he was he was four miles out, was a dummy and had told nobody where he went um, and couldn't walk. Uh, That's and terrifying. So that, that, went, that, that went good and then bad very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it actually ended pretty well. Uh, we had a sat phone. We were all prepared. Um, and he was across a gorge and we decided, no, it's better not to try to cross the gorge and risk somebody else getting hurt. We'll call in with a sat phone. We'll get paramedics. They know this area. And uh, they actually didn't have to get him out by helicopter. Uh, some paramedics uh, hiked up with a stretcher and were able to cross. Um, and so it ended up being, it ended well. Everybody survived. He got treatment. He, you know, he was, it's, he's able to walk. He's fine. Um, but <laughs> it was, it was a great example of things going very well and then immediately sideways and having to deal with that. You don't have an option, right? Somebody's mm -hmm. out here and you're the only person around. Um, it helped that, as you know, I'm very loud. So I could communicate <laughs> across the gorge over the wind because we could barely hear him. Um, but yeah, that was, a. Uh, it was definitely an instance where you realize that nature goes from being this really wonderful, friendly thing to be outside in to immediately dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, sort of both things are true, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad that you shared that story because I think a lot of times people either are kind of disillusioned by this idea of nature being this beautiful thing that we can go out in, but that is like cultivated nature, the, like, <laughs> the nature that we have uh, created these beautiful like parks and wilderness reserves out of mm -hmm. that are surrounded by urban areas or something. But then if you're yeah. actually out in the wilderness, like, <laughs> it's, it's almost better to treat it as a really dangerous zone all the time and be prepared. <laughs> like, and then and then enjoy it as you can and hopefully nothing goes wrong and hopefully you're comfortable and you have a great time but it's better to be prepared for the worst than yeah. just go out naively when when i was when i was younger i grew up fairly close to the ocean right coastal southern california um and of course my parents made me do swim lessons before we could go to the beach Right, fine. But the number one thing that they always hammered into me was the ocean is bigger than you are, right? And when you enter the ocean, you enter the food chain. We're mm -hmm. sort of used to being above and away from the natural processes of the world. Uh, and, you know, you talk about nature is always dangerous. It is. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful to be out in and to have a connection with. But yeah, you really do need to be prepared. Mm -hmm. um, and that is that is absolutely something that I think about every time I'm out doing soil sampling, right? We're out on the rangeland uh, digging pits because we need to do sampling or doing vegetation monitoring. And you need to be aware, okay, maybe you're not in mountain lion country, but thirst is still a really big factor that mm -hmm. you need to think about. Heat is a big factor you need to think about. Are the rangelands out in Eastern California and uh, Western Nevada gorgeous? Absolutely. I love this country. 
but they're also dangerous and you just need to be aware of that fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounded like you, uh, you were really prepared when you went out with your friends and that made the difference. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess other than um, like having those uh, survival gear kind of items, like having mm-hmm. a satellite phone, having sure. plenty of water, having maybe a backup water filter, um, some sort mm-hmm. of shelter that you could rig or at least know how to make one kind of those, those emergency things. Are there any items, any like tech, whether it's mental or uh, physical that you like to bring to be prepared for like any scenario? Uh, The absolute simplest thing is never be out without anybody knowing where you are. Never be alone. Um, Yes. Anywhere you're going, especially if you're going out of cell service, but even if you are in cell service, heck, you could hit your hand and your cell phone drops. You need to tell people where you are. Mm-hmm. When I was working with the Bureau of Land Management uh, doing that vegetation monitoring, we would be out of cell service for about four days at a stretch. We would go out into the middle of nowhere. We'd bring all our water in. We'd do our monitoring for three and a half days and then drive back. Because it was like a four-hour drive back, so you don't want to waste time during the day. And the standard rule was if you are more than four hours late uh, on your way back without having checked in about it, there's going to be a helicopter flying out and it's going to be very expensive. Mm. Uh, So you tell people where you are and then if you can't check in, there's a backup plan in place. Now, Mm -hmm. not everybody can afford a helicopter. I get that. I understand that. (laughs) Um, But what you can do is you can say, you know, to your significant other or your friend or heck, just somebody, you know, I'm going to be out here. I'm going to text you in two days. If I don't text you in two days, can you please inform people of where I am and send somebody looking for me? Mm -hmm. Um, That every single tragedy you hear about uh, where somebody is out in the backcountry, so many of them can be avoided if they just say, if you set up a plan in advance. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I always do when I go out on a backpacking trip is I tell at least two people, usually four, if not five. (laughs) And then- (laughs) <laughs> Somebody has usually my one of my parents has a copy of the map that I'm using to navigate. Even and better. like yeah. that way they know this is the trail that I was going to be using. This is the destination. And if for some reason something goes wrong, they can be like, this is the route she was taking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that. Yeah, I, I really think that that is important because you can. Uh, you can kind of use your phone as a GPS and things like that. But like you said, you could drop your phone. It's not always like backtrackable, things like that. Mm -hmm. So having something in hard copy that somebody could reference if that was an emergency and it doesn't need to be printed. It could just be like texted to them, emailed to them, whatever. At least somebody has a record of the route that you're taking. So, And within that, let's say you say, I'm going to be up on this trail. Um, it's also on you if you say, oh, I want to go check out this, you know, canyon that's just a mile and a half off the trail to stop and say, okay, consider my situation. Let's be extra cautious. Sure, it doesn't mean you can't go out and check shit out, right? That's what's that's why you're out in nature. But you sort of look and say, okay, can we safely do this? Most of the time the answer is, yeah, sure, let's go. Um, you know, uh, but it doesn't hurt to be a little bit more prepared. Um, just checking yourself and checking 
uh, where your position is because you're aware of the danger, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, you're never going to be prepared for a meteor, you know, coming out of the atmosphere and bonking you on the head. But you can do almost everything else. <laughs> um, and, you know, talk with your park rangers and stuff if you're out in national parks. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much more that we could go into with that. But um, before we continue on, and you're going to be talking about how ecology and studying ecology has uh, shaped your worldview, I want to invite people to join Hungry Heart Quests, where the remainder of this podcast will be available. And I'm so excited to hear more from you, Graham. If you want, you can give a little introduction to this idea of how studying the outdoors, studying ecology has influenced all that is you <laughs> yeah <laughs> so there's a lot but let me let, preface this by i am very much a heart of scientist i'm studying science but it's also in the way that i think right part of that is my education has led me to focus on that but i really like when i can find a reason for something you can't always but I really like it when I can. And so I'm going to talk briefly, briefly, uh, about something called adaptive management. Um, and it doesn't sound like something that is like a personal, <laughs> a personal uh, you know, journey, but I promise you we'll get there. <laughs> um, the general idea is when you're working out on a landscape, you want to treat everything you do as an experiment and you want to adapt your management to that, to the results of that experiment. So let's say for instance, that you have, you know, 6,000 acres of rangeland that uh, burned and you just planted a bunch of native grass uh, to rehabilitate that. That's wonderful, that's great. Uh, you could call it a day uh, and say, good job team, we're great. Uh, and everybody feels really great and you go get beers and then you're done. Uh, but most likely that's not going to be the most successful thing that you can do. This is why so much of science is involved in monitoring because you want to check the results of what you did. And so you go out there one, two, three years after, and you realize that one species of grass is doing great and everything else has died. Um, so, okay, well, you didn't quite do as great as you thought, um, <laughs> but now you have more information and you can either reseed more of the successful grass or you can adapt the next strategy to involve that. You can look at why did this succeed when other things failed? Maybe it's a deep rooted versus a shallow rooted or what have you. Mm -hmm. But then the next time you do that, you take that into consideration. And then again, and then again, and again. It's an iterative process, right? It's never finished, but each time you get somewhat more successful, right? And each time your dollar goes a little bit further into restoring that landscape. And I think about this for basically everything, um, which I, I like to treat as much as possible all of the inputs in my life as experimental. Now, I might, you might think of this as it could be a relationship with somebody. Is this healthy for me? It could be a habit. Uh, I get up quite early. I find that I like getting up quite early. Um, 
you know, but if you realize, hey, I'm always tired all the time, maybe that's not a good thing for you to do. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, you, know, you don't have to be putting together Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> um, some people might want to. <laughs> some people, if that works for you, that's fine. Um, but this is this is my version of self-checking, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's really what it boils down to is taking the time every so often to think about what's working for me and what's not. And very often in ecology and in your own personal life, you can look at something and it can be too big to make an answer about, right? Uh, if you ask the question, what's happening on this landscape? The answer is very long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and most of the time, anybody who's asked that will say, what do you mean? Be more specific. Mm -hmm. And from this, I get the idea that many problems appear unsolvable, and some of them even are. But almost every problem can be broken down into easier components. Mm -hmm. So you say, this relationship isn't working out for me and I don't feel well. Why is that? Well, hell, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and that's the first answer. And that's fine. But then you can take a second and go, okay, let's break it apart. I am always playing video games when I hang out with this person. And it means that I don't get enough exercise. Do I want to get more exercise? Well, let's try it and see. Right? You might not know the answer. And everything for me is, well, let's try it and see. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes you can get a good gut instinct if something is like good for your mental health or not. Yeah, or whether you listen health. to that is a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the idea that you can't control what your gut reactions are, but you can control how you interpret them. I think right? that... I would, if I were to parallel what you've been talking about to like health and wellness, I would say the scientific nice. experiment side is thinking like using smart goals. And part of the smart goals thing is that they're, they're measurable, they're timely, you know what your, your variable is that you're bringing in and that you have some accountability to actually test that and see yeah. it through. Um, with Things like, I really like how you talked about, you can look at a big picture, like what's wrong with this landscape? And maybe we'll say, what's wrong with this landscape, right? <laughs> Looking at ourselves and it's overwhelming. And sometimes you're like, ah, oh, well, my joints hurt and my, uh, my digestion's poor and I'm always tired and I have brain fog and my eyes are red and itchy or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And that can be really overwhelming because people don't know where to start. But sometimes you sure. just have to pick one thing. And I think narrowing it down is always sometimes challenging, at least from a health perspective. I usually, well, from a habit perspective, really, I'm like, start with what's one easy thing to start with, because sometimes you just need like that little chip to get the ball rolling. And yeah. um, with the idea of being able to choose I think resiliency plays a really big role in that. You have to have enough resiliency in yourself in order to actually make positive changes. And I would guess that there's some echo of that in like landscape and ecology. <laughs> it, it's funny because we even use the certain terminology, which is really interesting. Um, when, when we're working with some restoration project, which is my bread and butter, right? That's what I'm going to school to get better at. But that is that is what I know how to do, is how to make things better. Um, you, you generally try to look for low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
you you look for uh what's what's the project that's going to make me look smart uh what's the project <laughs> that's likely to succeed um get the stuff that's easy first yeah right? and i don't think that's a bad thing like even for uh on a like an ecological level like making one small improvement even if it's like the easiest one it's mm -hmm. still an improvement and that's something that we should be able to recognize as like a goodness in the world <laughs> specifically getting the easy ones are the ones that are most likely to actually succeed mm -hmm. right you have if you're working on a landscape you have limited time and money if you're working on yourself you have limited time you get one life uh yep. and so Absolutely. you want to work on the things that you think are likely to succeed first mm -hmm. and then once you've done those you can check okay now that this is here did that open up any new avenues for something else Sometimes Absolutely. it does, sometimes it doesn't, and you've reached the best that you can get with that situation, and that's okay. You're still better than where you started, mm -hmm. right? Maybe now it's that your joints hurt and you're tired, but you don't have brain fog. Okay, well, that's better than where you started. Yeah, and <laughs> with that, you probably have a little more resiliency, which means you can then approach these other things with a little more power. And I really like that you use the term resiliency, because resilience is a, a scientific ecological term. Uh, that is the idea of how much of an outside force a landscape or an ecosystem can take and still return back to its original condition. Mm. Um, in ecology, there are these things called ecological thresholds, where if you get pushed far enough, you might not be able to naturally return to where you started. You're going to reach a new stable state. And so you talk about building resiliency, that's important uh, ecologically, but it's also absolutely the same thing applies uh, for people, right? How far, how much stress can you take from something before it's going to alter you? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can build that more, that's fantastic. Yeah. Right? And I think there's a level of skill on, on the human side of these things. There's a level of skill that you can take where if you're under an amount of stress that you know is going to alter you and you're not mm -hmm. going to bounce back or come back to a stable state, you can twist it to make it something that's going to benefit you, even if it means that it's benefiting you in a new way, in like a new version mm -hmm. of yourself.